listening to Crossings Conversations from Church Divinity School of the Pacific, a show about leaders creating Christian community and sharing God's love. Hello, I'm Carly Lane, and my guest today is the Reverend Dr. William Sutherland Stafford. Although nominally retired, the Reverend Dr. Stafford has taught church history at CDSP as a visiting professor for the past decade. Prior to his post at CDSP, he was a professor of church history at the University of the South and dean of the School of Theology. Before that, he was the David J. Eli Professor of Church History at Virginia Theological Seminary and served as the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Vice President. For over five decades, he has been educating and forming scholars, theologians, and leaders in the church. Beyond his significant gifts as a teacher and administrator, The Reverend Dr. Stafford is an accomplished scholar, pastor, preacher, liturgist, and community leader. We're so grateful to have him here with us today. We'll be reflecting on his career to date and pondering what lies ahead. Reverend Dr. Stafford, welcome. Thank you. What was the cultural historical context in which you were formed spiritually and intellectually? I was raised in the Presbyterian Church and... My father was a Presbyterian minister, and my grandfather was a Presbyterian minister and missionary. And my mother, um, I think that today she would certainly be ordained as a minister, but she was not able to in those days, nor did she recognize that calling. But boy, she sure taught a lot. She used to say to my siblings and me, your father preaches one day a week. I preached six days a week, and that's pretty much how it was. It was a very intensely Christian religious environment. That's really how I was formed, a deep love for Holy Scripture, a deep love for uh, a deep recognition of Jesus Christ's love for humanity, for us, for me. I was raised in a setting in which um, there was just a great deal of love. One of the characteristics of my own work has been that all of my work until I came to CDSP was done in residential theological education. And at CDSP, that's the only part of it I've done. I haven't engaged in remote education at all. which is now the new direction for CDSP as a whole. That did not occasion my retirement. I think it was just time for me to retire, and I had made that decision long before the announcement was made. But, uh, but it's, in a way, it's just as well. I'm very adapted to and have served diligently in residential theological education, and I'm fairly clueless about how to do it remotely. When we were in COVID and on Zoom, I was not as good a teacher as I am face-to-face. So I, um, well, in any case, my colleagues who are involved in all of that have been very patient with me and understanding of me, and I've been very grateful for that. You've got this line, you say, I study and teach as a Christian and a priest, but with an open ear to the non-Christians around me. 
I would love to hear a little bit more about what that sentence means to you and why you chose to include it and, and what you hope others will take from it. Um, well, to some extent, that was implicit in how I was raised. My uh, parents only um, subscribed to two magazines. One was Christianity Today, the Evangelical Banner publication, and the other was the New Yorker. Um, which was definitely not that. I went to uh, Stanford University as an undergraduate, which was in those days no hotbed of of piety, Um, um, quite the contrary. Um, So I needed to learn how to listen to other voices than those that came from the heart of the gospel. I've never been very successful in learning how to talk back to those voices, Um, but I have been eager to hear and to learn from and to, without, without leaving behind my faith, uh, without leaving behind any sense of what God is doing in the world by the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, which is what I have always cared about and what I still do absolutely care about. Um, those are my deepest, deepest loyalties. But I need to hear what's going on uh, around. My graduate education was in the 70s. I did not have a single woman who taught me. Even at Stanford, I'd only had one class that was taught by a woman. Quite a lot of what I think, moved the church in the direction that the Holy Spirit wanted us to move um, was voices from outside the church that were demanding justice. Um, The same is true with uh, racism and ethnic studies. Um, There was none of that even available, as far as I know, when I was an undergraduate, and certainly none of it um, in in my graduate education, except a loyalty to the civil rights movement, which ran very deep and was very strong, both places and in me. Um, but uh, but that was more a recognition of the longstanding abolitionism of my family. Then, and uh, and of how we came at things that way than it was <clears throat> of any kind of practical sense of what changes need to be made in the life of the church from that. And the voices, while Martin Luther King's Jr.'s voice was from inside the church, it, there were also voices that were almost as eloquent that came from outside that we needed to hear, that I needed to hear, and that made a difference in my ministry quite, quite strongly. I'm struck by what seems like a rhyme here between your personal faith and practice and your commitment to listening to what people say in the secular world are saying and letting that inform your understanding of how the Holy Spirit is working. You're recurrently looking to these non-ecclesial sources. So you're looking at people who are in the laity, um, you know, they, they don't understand themselves to be doing church work, and yet their insights are, are 
I don't know if you would say they're urgently needed by certainly they have a profound influence on how the church understands itself and where the, the theology goes. I have always been interested as a scholar and personally um, in what ordinary people made of the Christian religion, people who were not ordained, people who are not professionally responsible for the life of the church. Um, that was what uh, my research was in the Reformation in Strasbourg, essentially what, uh, what was the most interesting part about it was about the revolution that the people of Strasbourg had against the medieval clergy and how they transformed the place of the clergy in the, the most radical way as a result of the Reformation. Um, and the most exciting discovery I made in the archives was when uh, a member of the city council had unilaterally blessed a marriage between a priest and the daughter of one of the major attorneys in the town and this then the the brother of the young woman who was married sued the city on the grounds that it was against imperial law to do anything like that which was true and and he had to take uh uh statements, actual testimony, written testimony um, from everyone involved in that whole event. The mother of the young woman, the young woman, the, the, the member of the city council who did it, the lawyer who was involved, and the young man who was making the suit himself. And it was a window in the middle of the Reformation movement into what was going on in the lives and minds of ordinary People had to earn a living, um, and uh, and that fascinated me. And that was really, in certain respects, the heart of that scholarly work. Can you tell me a little bit about that move into the Episcopal Church? Basically, two things happened in me and also in my wife, Barbara. One is that my enthusiasm for the Reformation was qualified after studying it so closely. I studied the late Middle Ages just as intensely, and I came to the conclusion that the Reformation was really wrong to judge that the whole medieval church was a giant conspiracy against, um, against the laity, uh, that they were exploiting on a, knowing that they were teaching a false gospel, exploiting people for their own financial advantage, that didn't—that wasn't consistent with an awful lot of the people I studied in the late Middle Ages and in the Reformation movement it's, uh, itself. Um, I, I could not believe that the papacy as such was the Antichrist. Um, so that let, so I sat a little bit looser to the Reformation, even though I was, was and am very loyal to the, some of the basic doctrines of the Reformation, that we're justified by grace alone through, uh, through faith alone. Uh, uh, that, that seems clearly taught in the New Testament as such, and I, I don't see any particular 
desire, I have no desire to get around that. Um, and I've taught out of that heart for all the time I've taught. And, and I should say parenthetically that when I teach, I teach enthusiastically about the movement I'm, that we're studying. I'm, I'm not as interested in all that was wrong with it as in what was right with it and what the spiritual power behind it was. So when I teach the Reformation, I teach it very, very enthusiastically, more enthusiastically than I myself am. Um, the other, the other aspect in my conversion, the other aspect of my conversion to the Episcopal Church, is that I, I came to believe what many Anglicans do not believe, but which many do, in the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Eucharist, and that belief, which I share with Luther, um, <clears throat> um, was not at home in the Presbyterian Church um, at all, uh, and. And I found, uh, and when we were, uh, when I was in my, <clears throat> when I was in my first years of teaching at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, we found that the nearest church to us, and one where we had an early service where we could get to, and I could get home and get back to work, was um, a very high uh, Episcopal church, St. Stephen's, Providence. And uh, we instantly found a home there. It was right for us. And then when we had a personal tragedy, um, the liturgy there simply carried us. Um, and so did the care and love of, of the people and clergy there. So, but the liturgy above all. And that, it just made sense for us to get confirmed at that point. And that's what we did. Mm-hmm. So you were confirmed then in your in your late twenties, and then by your mid thirties, you were pursuing holy orders in the Episcopal Church. When I was teaching there, students simply couldn't understand why I wasn't ordained. They just couldn't understand it, mm-hmm. and I kept on saying, "I don't need to be. I don't particularly want to be. I don't feel called to be necessarily." But they kept on asking the question, so I went on a series of retreats to, to try to see if that question was alive in me, and it was. And, uh, and I had a pretty clear experience of God's call to the priesthood, and I, um, I answered that call as best I could. It was hard to do uh, in many respects, partly because I was teaching full time at Virginia Seminary, which was a very much a full time job, um, more than full time. I had a family with young children. After my first couple of years as a priest, I got a chance to go on sabbatical for a year, and ended up in a little Anglo-Saxon church with a vicar who needed help uh, because of all the other things he was having to do. And we made fast friends with his family and with him. And in many respects, I was really formed as a priest in England as much as I was in America. Um, in that very secular environment there, but with faithful and devoted people who actually did come to church. And, and it was just 
a wonderful formation and and a lot of wisdom from the priest I was working with um, and he was very generous to me so so that that too is part of the story I my closest to full-time ministries in a parish church that I've really had besides a couple of times in the, in, in this country was in, were in England I was member of the North uh, North Durham ministry team for the north part of Durham City in the north of England uh, for most of a year and and that was a most interesting and informative experience too being part of the ministry team um, in a new model for ministry that was not one priest one parish um, because they couldn't sustain that anymore um, so that was that's that's part of the story about how that happened. What do you notice has changed in theological education? What are you excited about? What are you concerned about? I had a former colleague who said that every 500 years, the church is a fire sale. And I think one's underway right now. Um, and, mm. and in many respects, I'm clueless about what's going to come out of it. Um, but... I, I do think that a couple of values need to be held on to in theological education, and I think they will be. Um, even in remote uh, theological education, there's a high priority being given to community. They're doing their very best to establish and maintain community in those online groups of learners. Um, and faculty, um, I don't think that answers all the questions, but I think but I think that the community aspects of mutual formation for for people who are preparing for ordination and for lay ministries, learned lay ministries in the church um, is of critical importance. It's obvious in residential theological education. Um, I think they're, they've been working very hard on learning how to do that in remote. And I think it's critical that they succeed in doing so. And I think the early returns from the research into how it's going are, is pretty positive. Um, but, um, but I think we will know more in 20 years and we know more about how, that, how that's coming. The other thing, and I think this is very much in the hearts of of my call of many of my colleagues anyway um i think that a fundamental centeredness in the basic gospel the what we tend to as episcopalians refer to as the paschal mystery christ has died christ is risen christ will come again finding our center in that central, inexplicable, but but life-changing mystery. So I, I wonder, so every historian I know is obsessed with the question of continuity and discontinuity. And I wonder, when you think about your career and your, your scholarship, your research, where are the continuities and discontinuities? Can you tell a coherent story about about what it is that you've pursued and been curious about and written about? 
I've noticed a certain embarrassment, not just in the Episcopal Church, but across the spectrum of clergy and lay people being willing to use that three-letter word sin. Um, it's not popular. It used to be very popular. Um, and it, and uh, way back in the centuries that I mostly study in. And it just isn't anymore. People are more or less, well, many people seem to be allergic to the whole idea. No doubt because it's been so badly misused by the church and by others in, in, uh, in, in, in many ways. But there is a way in which I think the Christians really need to talk about it. Um, they, the, the darkness that is in part of the heart of the whole social structure that we're in, like uh, racism, uh, is, I think, sin. Uh, and I think it meets the classical understandings of sin in a corporate way. Um, certainly from the Old Testament. Um, I, I also think that um, in people's struggles with God, um, that the role that um, is played by guilt in their lives some, sometimes uh, and the anger that results from all of that is, is has been a, a block to their spiritual growth and I and I think that having an adequate understanding of sin and above all redemption, God's grace and God's forgiveness in Christ, I think that that's just um, central to people making any real kind of spiritual progress, at least many people. And I, uh, not everybody's like everybody else, but that certainly has been true of me and of most of the people that I've worked with. So I tried to write the book to rehabilitate the concept of sin. Now, it's dated now. It's, it's um, I'd write it somewhat differently now than I did then, of course, because it was couple of decades ago that I wrote the thing but I um, and and uh, the world has changed around me and I've changed with it in certain respects but I um, but I haven't lost that that conviction it's very hard to speak of sin in the church and it's almost impossible to do it in the wider culture um, and I and yet I think it's it's necessary. I do not think that it's adequate to treat major social disorders like structural racism. For me, without that category coming into play, it's an offense against God. It's an offense against neighbor, and it needs to be repented of and consistently repented of, and deeply and structurally repented of. And that's one of the major themes of the book. But, but it's true in lots of other areas of life, too.
But I think that the kind of amnesia, which our religious culture seems to me, to some extent, to be fostering is unhelpful in the long run to the to the work of reconciliation and and seeking new life. Reverend Dr. Stafford, Bill, I want to thank you. Um, yeah, really, like from the heart, thank you so much for giving so fully of yourself. Is there anything you'd like to, to add before we close our time together? No, except to say thank you to all of my colleagues over the years, including at CDSP, to thank them living and dead, um, to thank them for being so such thoughtful colleagues to me, patient with me when I was obstreperous and um, supportive of me when they thought I was doing the right thing and trying to understand me when I was going in directions that they couldn't fully agree with. Um, I've, I've had wonderful colleagues and that's very largely why I care so much about the future of faculty community in the future of theological education. I, it's, it's been of enormous creative importance to me and I've been very grateful for it and I, and I would hate to see it diminished or, uh, or that possibility taking away, taken away from younger scholars because of the new structures of theological education. I trust it won't be I hope it, I hope that new ways will be found forward in that. Also, I'd just like to say how grateful to God I am for the opportunities that have been given to me in theological education for all these years. It got all fit together. So I think while I don't see the fabric that God is weaving out of our lives all that clearly, in many ways, that's one piece of it I do see. And my gratitude as well to my wife, Barbara, and to my five children, um, but especially to Barbara, who's been a formative influence in my life since day one. Um, I'm just grateful to all those people, deeply grateful, as I look back over a long career from which I am now retiring. And, and, and in my own way, letting go, and in my own way, continuing. So thank you, Carly. I've been appreciating our dialogue very much. Well, likewise. It's, it's hard to stop, but I'm, I'm consoling myself that I have your books to, ah. to carry me. Bless you. Thank you. Crossings Conversations is a co-production of Church Divinity School of the Pacific and Trinity Church Wall Street. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or share it with a colleague. You can learn more about the only Episcopal seminary on the West Coast and subscribe to Crossings Magazine at cdsp.edu.